0: Hello, Producer Jonah here, and a very quick reminder that if you're enjoying the show, be sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Now over to Lloyd and Emil as they try to figure out whether things are getting better or worse. Welcome to Principle of Charity, I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. So let's get on to our Principle of Charity personal challenge today. Key to the Principle of Charity is to listen brilliantly. And here are three listening roadblocks and three small tips to listen better and consequently be more charitable in your conversation. Listening roadblock one is the urge to tell your story. When someone is talking, we often want to interrupt and say something about our own experience. So tip one, restrain the urge to tell your story. Listening roadblock two is the urge to want to give advice. When someone is sharing something that is upsetting, it can be uncomfortable to listen to them. In the hope of getting the person to feel better so you don't have to feel uncomfortable, you might be inclined to tell them how to solve their gloominess. So tip two, restrain the urge to give advice early on in a conversation. Listening roadblock three, reacting emotionally. If you are being criticized or the person is talking about something you don't agree with, emotions are triggered. It is natural to get defensive and not listen to what the person is saying. For instance, if I tell you the FBI orchestrated the 9-11 bombing, this is likely to upset you or might upset you, and you might fire back right away without listening to my entire reasoning. So tip three, don't let your emotions be your master. It might be better if you hear others out and then acknowledge what they are saying before you state your opinion. Now, Emil, tell
1: us what the question and topic for today is. Thanks, Lloyd. Those are some great tips there, actually. uh, I was taking notes. Um, (laughs) I have to apply
0: those tips to myself. (laughs) If
1: we could only apply them as well as we could talk about them. The topic today is, are things getting better or worse? Now, Lloyd, I came across some great news, actually, when researching this episode. Apparently, five million children under five died in the last year. Does that make you want to celebrate? It does not. Well, well if I told you that the number has more than halved in the last 30 years which is again a huge reduction from the 20 million children under 5 who died each year in 1950 so what do we do with information like this I know I feel pulled in two directions 5 million child deaths is an unacceptable tragedy at the same time 15 million children are essentially saved each year as it compared to 1950 so how should we think and feel about so many things that are still so so bad but crucially here so much better than they were. I'm personally fascinated by this and our ability or lack of ability to hold these intellectually consistent but emotionally incongruent thoughts that things are bad, but at the same time better. The reason we should care about this is that how we emotionally respond to things colours everything. If we see the 5 million deaths as an emergency, as a signal that things are just not right, we may want to throw out the policies that have saved 15 million lives of you know, children under five years old a year. So where do we get our information from? And do, does it bias us towards the negative or maybe it biases us to the positive? Well, we know that the media industry plays to the negatives, doesn't it? As It's more profitable. From the old adage, it's, if it bleeds, it leads, to the fact that we're primed to care more about dangers than about progress, particularly immediate dangers over slowly accumulated good news stories. There's also the availability bias, which means that what we read every day in the media colours our beliefs and decisions much more than it should. A headline, five million babies died this year, makes it hard to do the slow thinking needed to recognise that policies may in fact be working. So are we stuck in a psychological, cultural and economic system where we're likely to overestimate the bad and, and underestimate the good? But what about the areas where we tend to not be worried enough? like low-probability, high-impact events, such as, you know, maybe the rise of artificial intelligence, or the slowly accumulating global challenges like climate change, or areas we just fatigue of hearing bad news about, including maybe things like child mortality, which uh, which don't really appear in our news much at all, do they? Well, in this episode, we're going to do what we can to help unpack the truth. What is getting better and what is getting worse? We have a wonderful professor from the London School of Economics who leads the International Inequalities Institute. And so on the negative side, I imagine we'll focus largely on inequality, on the economic challenges, particularly to the lower middle classes in the West, and on political challenges such as the rise of autocracies and the decline in human rights. On the positive side, we're going to have some fun, I hope, uh, reminding our listeners of the incredible progress that continues to be made in so many areas from the mind blowing reductions in poverty and therefore in global inequality actually, to economic growth, technology, gender and race rights and equity, education, drinking water, even the reduction in teen pregnancies. Lloyd, only a small percent of people in the Western world think that things are getting better, not worse. Let's see if they're right or not.
0: Emil, our two guests today who will elucidate on this topic are Emma Vivalukas and Francisco Ferreira. Let me tell you about Emma first. Emma is an editor and writer. She is the executive director of the Progress Network, where she writes the weekly What Could Go Right newsletter and co-hosts the What Could Go Right podcast. She was formerly the executive editor of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, which is the premier publication covering Buddhist news and culture. In addition to the Progress Network and Tricycle, Emma's writing has also appeared in the New York Post, Forbes, and has been syndicated by Apple News. Emma is also the host of the Practical Buddhism podcast. She's a 2021 Dialogue Emerging Fellow and a graduate of New York University, where she double majored in journalism and religious studies. Our other guest is Francesco Ferreira, who is the Armatia Senior Professor of Inequality Studies at the London School of Economics, where he is also director of the International Inequalities Institute. Francesco is an economist working on the measurement, causes, and consequences of inequality and poverty in developing countries with a special focus on Latin America. Francesco has been published widely and has been awarded various research prizes. He is also an affiliate scholar with the Stone Center at the City University of New York and currently serves as president of the Latin American and Caribbean Economic Association. Prior to joining the LSE, Francesca had a long career at the World Bank, where his positions included chief economist for the African region. He has also taught at the Paris School of Economics. Francesca was born and raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and holds a PhD in economics from the London School of Economics. Emil, let's bring on the guests.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Emma and Francisco, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Emma, I'm going to start with you. Only a small percentage of people in the Western world, as I understand it, think that things are getting better. Most think things are getting worse. And we're going to get into the psychology of all of that a little bit later in the episode, which I think some really fantastic and interesting psychological points of why. But first of all, could you give us an overview? You know, where are things getting better? What's getting better? And why should we be hopeful?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so I should say at the outset that I don't want to argue that on the whole things are getting better, you know, across every measure everywhere in the world, cool. because I think that that's not true. And, um, even if you were to take everything on the balance, I'm not even sure how, how exactly you would make that argument if, if on the mm-hmm. whole things are getting better or worse. But I am very happy to say that there are a lot of things that are getting better that people don't know about or that people don't pay attention to, um, mostly mm-hmm. because that information is not being served to them, right? Like you really have to go out and seek the information. So for instance, I think that there's a lot of improvements going on with climate change that people aren't aware of um, because of the way the climate change is handled in the news. There's a massive uh, investment in clean tech right now, massive scale up of renewables. There's been a disconnection between economic growth and emissions where it used to be that you didn't have an economy that was able to grow without Also raising emissions. It's not the case any longer. There's lots of health measures uh, across the world that, um, despite the COVID pandemic are getting better. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know like the malaria map that came out, um, a few weeks ago, there's also a maternal mortality map that came out a few weeks ago. And what gets attention, particularly in the U S where, um, the progress network is located is that the U S is going backwards on maternal mortality, for instance, which is bad, but, uh, the rest of the map, um, almost every single other country uh, is getting better. So there are things like that, that, um, And
1: what's happening in malaria, yeah, Emma, what's uh, happening? That's things right. are getting that, better. That's so, like one of the worst afflictions to face, you know, humanity.
2: Yes, yes. Um there are countries that are slowly eradicating it, right? So China became one of those countries um around the time of the pandemic. There are a couple of other countries that are on the brink right now. They thought they thought generally that there's going to be a lot of uh rising cases when the COVID pandemic came. They thought there was going to be like a mm. massive step back and there was somewhat of a step back, but not nearly as much as they expected and on the whole we're we're getting there. Um there are a few for the first time efficacious malaria vaccines that have been approved, so those are going to get um, Those are going to start rolling out everywhere. So
1: yeah, well let's can we stay with the good news stories? I mean, what, what else is there? Just so we can sort of give the audience a sense of the broad range of things. I mean, you know, there, there's just economic progress generally, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But life expectancy, child mortality, you talked about war, Deaths, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like what? What are the other things you've come across in the Progress Network which gives you some confidence?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look over the span of let's say a hundred years, right, life expectancy has right. shot up, um, wealth just generally all over the world has shot up. You after World War II entered this period of the Long Peace, despite uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. This period that's called the Long Peace, where the world saw an uh, unprecedented length of time, you know, without large-scale uh, military action. We are seeing particularly in the U.S. because we're focused in the U.S. for the first time a, a plateau or maybe a dip um, for opioid overdose deaths. We're seeing you know for the first time in a long time wage growth from the the bottom percentile of the wealth pyramid. So we're actually in a period of wage compression where wages are growing much faster at the bottom than at the top. Generally we've got you know these economies worldwide that are going to start being major players in the world, like India, Bangladesh. Bangladesh in particular is a big success story. A lot of poverty rates that are that are dropping. Uh, the, I mentioned the ozone layer. Um, that's yeah. another one where you know, thirty or forty years ago, uh, we were all convinced we were going to be fried into little crispy bacon, you know, because of the rays that are coming through the hole in the ozone. And um, it, we haven't completely healed the ozone yet, but we will soon in the next thirty or so years, because it takes a little while for these solutions to um, you know come to pass. But we've basically done it. Like it's going, it's it's heading yeah. on the right path, and it's going to be healed. And I think just like the the, the really big ones are poverty being slowly pushed down into into very particular regions of the world.
1: I don't think many people are aware of the great strides in sort of poverty reduction. It's not something we hear about much, is it?
2: It's not. Um, and, And again, it's just something that happens on a very large timeline. A lot of these sort of like nuts and bolts things like countries that are getting better access to electricity. Like You just don't hear about that uh, in the news um, because it's pretty boring. India is another great example. They're doing this huge program right now where they are trying to make sure that every household in India has access to piped water. And they've done half of the households in like a very short amount of span it's like a handful of years they're doing this massive infrastructure project which is going to then have you know spillover effects onto public health issues um any disease that's carried through unsanitized water um so you're going to see that all that stuff uh get better in india pretty soon and again it's not going to be something that people are reading about um because it's just not that sexy right it's not that sexy when you write a story about it and you're like hey just so you know you know um You know, half a million houses or however many it was now have access to pipe water. Like it just doesn't get you in the heart, right? I mean, it's great. It's really, really good, but it just doesn't get you in the heartstrings.
1: And the immediacy, I mean, there are things that have and we will get into those waned in the last decade or or more. But when you step back and look at the broader sweep of history just in the last hundred years, I mean, even something which is so emblematic of progress is life expectancy. My understanding is that it's, it's more than doubled since 1900 now that if you just sort of look at the assuming life is pleasurable on net which is is arguable mm-hmm. uh, and many philosophers argue that but that it is an incredible sign that things are progressing even though maybe that is is tapering off in some countries but it's it, it's hard to get our head around these very slow these slow but compounding changes that happen over a long period of time
2: just in general right people are living longer Maybe happier, uh, healthier lives. If you're going on a long time span, you know, the last 100 or 200 years, many more people these days are living under democracies than they used to. Many more people are yeah. living lives that are, you know, under free governments. You have human rights. Human rights. It's very easy to get caught in the 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 ongoing battle of, of that stuff, um, in one particular country. But if you look at it on the whole, you do, for instance, have a slow kind of creeping of LGBTQ rights coming, um, more and more countries, you know while we certainly have a lot of countries that are coming down on LGBTQ rights uh, we also have like f- former Soviet bloc countries starting to give civil unions and approve same-sex marriage there's some yeah. very slow progress in Asia um, and it's slow uh, but we're certainly at a very different place now than we were a hundred years ago when it comes to human rights yeah um, e- e- even just the fact that uh, if we're going to talk about human rights as relating to war the fact that there was so much of an outcry when Putin invaded Ukraine is not the history Historical precedent, even seventy years ago, like there, there was not this morality of this is an immoral thing to do, right? War crimes was a was an idea that had to be developed. Um, nowadays, there's just like a massive worldwide outcry when when Putin invaded yeah. Ukraine.
1: Yeah, no, well, thanks. That's I think that's a really you know comprehensive overview. And we'll go to you, Francisco, because I imagine you agree with a whole bunch of things Emma said. And we're not. Let's look at the crossovers a little later. But I'd love you to just give us a sense of the things that aren't going so well, you know, because particularly in, in, in my generation growing up at the time when, when it felt like liberal democracies were winning and it was going to be sort of the end of a certain version of history, there's a sense that the wind's been taken out of our sails and it's, things aren't what we hoped they would be. What would be the arguments for the things that are, are essentially getting worse? Yeah, I, as you
3: said, I do agree with, with quite a lot that, that Emma said, particularly when we take the really long span of history. Um, mm. I think there's, there's no denying that many things are getting better, certainly on poverty and health and, and so on. And things that are getting worse, you know, it was interesting that Emma already mentioned climate change as something that was getting better. I would argue <laughs> that perhaps they're just not getting as as terribly worse as quickly as we expected. Um, but things are still getting very bad. I mean, when, uh, when I was growing up, we had no idea that we were going to face this, you know, cataclysmic process whereby sea levels may rise considerably, whereby, you know, storms uh, and, and droughts and floods and all of these things would become much worse. And they are already becoming much worse. Now, the sea level hasn't risen perceptibly yet. Um, but you keep hearing about this particular glacier or that particular glacier in Antarctica, and the moment they go down, um, we'll have massive sea level rise. Um, whether or not we do have that sea level rise, which I agree hasn't happened yet, um, I think the consequences of climate change have already been very detrimental to lots and lots of people around, around mm-hmm. the world, um, as a result primarily of the increase in the frequency and severity of extreme weather events and storms Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. things like that. There are people in the Sahel losing their livelihoods um, very rapidly because of desertification. Uh, There are indigenous people in the Andes losing their water sources because the glaciers aren't there anymore. So
1: I would say climate change... Yeah, that, you know, I, I think Emma is that quite right. that has to be in the bad category. Climate change, that things are getting—they're yeah, not getting better.
3: If climate change isn't the bad guy. Then, then, then <laughs> I think we really have rose-tinted glasses on. Now, I think she's probably right. I'm not an expert, but my reading of the technology is indeed there. There are big changes in the energy matrices around the world, and so we are responding. But I think we are responding late, and it's an open question as to you know how successful we'll be in that sure.
1: response. But outside of climate change, particularly with your area of expertise, where are you seeing the areas of concern for you?
3: Yeah, so I'll get to inequality in a, in a second. But just before I do, another big one is actually this this issue of whether or not more people are living under democracies. My my recollection is that, that things have been getting worse over the last uh, 10 or so years. And, it, you know, yes, if you compare it to the Soviet Union, I'm not sure, but if you compare it to any period since 1989, Russia is more authoritarian today than it was ever before. China, um, after slight openings, after Tiananmen Square and all of that, is now um, under its most authoritarian leader uh, since uh, Mao, probably. Um, India uh, is probably the the real disaster story in terms Mm. of democracy. We now have uh, an authoritarian populist who's vastly disrespectful of minorities who openly prosec- persecutes Muslims. Um, there's a lot of statistics on uh, Muslim incomes uh, going down, uh, poverty rising, you know, quite separately from uh, just the fact that their political rights are disrespected. Uh, he's a Hindu nationalist. He's a bigot. And then you've got places, well, and then you've got Hungary um, within the European Union where institutions are being subverted, You've got Turkey um, under Mm. an authoritarian government and perhaps most impressively of all, you know, a country like the United States, which we thought would never face that kind of risks, Mm. came very, very near, you know, Mm. came very, very near. And in Brazil, we had Bolsonaro and so on. So there's a wave of
1: anti-democracy. And that very much in my limited research for this, it did from what I saw in our world in data is that the last 15 to 20 years there has been an, a real marked decline in civil liberties freedoms even though technically democracies have been increasing you know the right to vote has increased but the free and fair elections and all the things you've talked about have have i guess marred that marred that progress
3: Yes. When the president of the United States and a large part of its Congress can say, well, yeah, there was an election, but I don't believe the results. Um, I think we have a problem, particularly because yeah. of how contagious that is. But let me get to inequality as well. So there, inequality yeah. is an interesting thing. Inequality is one of the things where globally things have been getting better. Um, I, I don't know that Emma mentioned it, but but they have. Global inequality has been declining. Yeah, globally. most people don't know that. Maybe you could just say a couple of things about that. No, them. in fact, you know, I was just writing something the other day. People tend to think that inequality is always rising everywhere, and it's it's not. Um, in fact, global inequality has declined since the late 80s, almost certainly, to a large extent because of two countries I just mentioned, which are China and India, right? They may be authoritarian, but they've been growing very fast, and a lot of Those people who are very poor have been moving towards the center of the distribution. Um, Also, there are a number of countries within which inequality has been declining, like most of Latin America up until about five years ago. But there are also countries where it's been rising, and most notably, again, the United States. The United States has seen an unambiguous increase in inequality uh, since about the Reagan Uh, tax cuts era. So not that that's causal, although it contributed, um, but for many other reasons, from around 1980 on, inequality in the United States has increased dramatically. That has had all kinds of consequences, including possible examples of capture of the political system in that country by by billionaires and, and political action groups and so on and so forth, which are, I think, in part related to the threat to democracy there. So I think, you know, I, I hope we have time later to get into more detail. But it, I, not only do I agree with Emma that not everything is getting worse, not everything is getting better. Many things are getting better and um, some are getting worse. It's also where, where they're happening. And it so happens that in the United States, um, you know, life expectancy has gone down recently. Um, I think respect to democracy has gone down. Inequality
1: has gone up. So yeah, there's some positive trends in wages. Polarization very, very has probably gone up too. I think polarization generally is a tendency. Polarization to has gone up.
3: But, uh, yeah, I also think where you look will, will, will matter. And, and the United States is in a, um, in a very difficult phase of the moment.
1: Could, could I ask you about inequality? Because I was researching poverty generally, and it seems like, and I was surprised at this, but poverty in America, as I understand it, has fallen from about 14.8% in 2010 down to 11.2% in 2020. But inequality has... You know, increased, and I understand this trend over the last couple of decades. I mean, we should be celebrating a reduction in poverty. But people, as, as as we well know, don't just care about actual poverty; they care about the distribution of money, about inequality, not just the raw poverty numbers. Why should we care about inequality? Like, what's the what's the problem with inequality as a sort of fundamental ill in 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 a country? If the actual levels of wealth are increasing, even though they might be increasing disproportionately.
3: That's an excellent question, and it, it's not that straightforward um, t- to answer. But 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 let me but let me try. I think there are three basic reasons why now most people have come to dislike inequality, even. You know, mainstream economists who, mm-hmm. uh, when I went to graduate school, would ask exactly those questions. They mm. just did, would say, you know, listen, so long as poverty is going down, who cares that there are lots of rich people, right? People are just envious, and that's not acceptable. It's, it should be fine that, that, that people get as rich as they like. Um, but as a principle in economics, the Pareto principle, which says if any one person gets better off and nobody else loses, society is better off. You know, it's a famous principle that guides a lot of the profession. So why do we disagree with it now? Why do we think inequality is a bad thing? So three three basic reasons. One, there's been a lot of research in behavioral economics and psychology mm. to suggest that people actually value a sense of fairness, ultimatum games and dictator games that people play in the lab, which basically mm. where it's shown that people are prepared to give up real money in order to punish people who made very low offers, who lowballed them.
1: Mm. Yeah, I've read about those. And then
3: that. That's one example. And it's gone on from there to anthropological studies in, in all kinds of different societies. And, and by and large, we now have evidence that convinces even the most pointy-headed, the cold-hearted economists that people are prepared to give up of their own money in order to see some fairer and more just outcome. Caveat, more just and fairer doesn't necessarily mean more equal And and there are sophisticated versions of those games where people are prepared to compensate for things that were driven by luck, inequalities Mm. that were driven by luck, and not by inequalities that were driven by people's own actions or efforts. Mm. It appears that people are more opposed to inequality of opportunity than to just any kind of inequality of outcome. But that's one thing. So there's evidence that actually we as human beings, and in fact, to be completely honest, there's really interesting stuff about monkeys. Monkeys don't like unfairness, okay? But the second reason is um, it's pretty much agreed now that very high levels of inequality uh, can lead to political capture, elite elite capture of of systems and therefore um, institutions that don't make choices for the majority but make choices for a small minority. And the third is that a lot of inequality related to poverty now in this case, just represents a waste of human potential. And to see this, you know, I used to, when I was teaching in Rio, I would point to the slums and say, look, how many engineers, potential engineers and scientists and lawyers, I'm not sure lawyers are useful, but anyway, engineers, uh, uh, scientists and other people, you know, could be there that are not coming out of there because they don't get have the opportunity. So if you exclude a large chunk of your population from opportunity, not only are they losing, but society is losing their potential.
1: That's that's really helpful. And I guess there is that sense of just and unjust inequality and also the question of, you know, do people deserve what they, the, the, the spoils from a meritocracy? There's a whole sort of a deep dive into in, into that at some point as well. I'll come back to one other question I have for you on 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 the sort of economics of it all, Francesco. But moving to you, Emma, I think it is worth taking a beat to just unpack the enormous increase in economic growth and prosperity, which, I th- uh, you know, again, talking about these long, slow processes that people forget about, that the world for millennia was really a zero-sum game and some people got rich by taking resources and money from those who were poor, and it's hard to comprehend the levels of poverty pretty much everyone in the world lived in for most of humanity. And then as I understand it, humanism and then the Industrial Revolution fueled this economic growth, which fueled population growth at the beginning, um, not, not individual wealth. But then eventually wealth per capita skyrocketed. and in, in 2018, the average GDP per capita worldwide was15,000 dollars, almost 15 times the average uh, in 1820. And this is with a skyrocketing population, so total wealth growth will be well in excess of that. Why should we care about economic growth? Like, what are the things that economic growth can fuel in terms of just the flourishing of of our lives?
2: We should care about economic growth because with more money, we can, you know, fix the various ills that we have of society. Right? I mean, economic yeah. growth means that you're helping the poverty levels go down usually, usually means you're helping public health issues be ameliorated. It means that you're su- actually really substantially improving people's lives, right? Even in the US, Matt Iglesias, uh, who's a member of the Progress Network, just wrote this piece, I think it was yesterday, called The Economics of Nostalgia. You know, when we talk about the American dream uh, in the past, the you know, this is a thing that used to be available to us all and now it's not blah, 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 that it's not actually true um mm. that people even, you know, seventy years ago in the US were living in levels of economic prosperity the, that we have far surpassed these days, just far yeah. surpassed um as a society. We'd be shocked
1: if we went back there. We would be yeah. it would be like being in a you know incredibly impoverished country now.
2: Yeah. And I think people don't people don't grasp that or understand that. Even, you know, I moved from the United States to Greece. Um they're both first world countries, or I, I'm not sure what the language is now you use for this. They're, they're both you know relatively wealthy countries compared to the rest of the world. But I see, still see a massive difference between living in the US and living in Greece. The, the convenience, the things that are available to you on your income, all of this stuff is massively different. And if we didn't have economic growth in the entire world, you know, we'd be living at the levels of what, what we were 100 years ago. So forget your washing machines, forget your air conditioning, forget You know, the amount of space you have in your house, Uh, forget Mm. all of your kitchen appliances that you don't realize are saving you a bunch of time all the time, Uh, Mm. forget savings, forget banking, uh, Mm. forget all of that stuff.
1: Forget (laughs) entertainment. I mean, there's so much of just our basic entertainment that relies on economic growth and technological progress, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Forget the internet. I mean, all this stuff. Um, and I think it's actually an interesting discussion when it comes to climate change because people don't realize that you know, part of the game with climate change right now is helping developing economies get more developed. Um, and they're doing that on like massive reliance of fossil fuels, right? So the climate change narrative is usually like fossil fuels as a bogeyman because it is causing us this, this massive Issue that That is a serious issue that needs to be solved. Um, but fossil fuels also brought us a lot. Uh, and, you know, it's not particularly fair to deny developing economies um, this level of economic prosperity, uh, because it, it, it really does change people's lives on the whole and and, and, and in an all encompassing way, so much so that we forget what it was like in, in the past. But I can tell you, like, just as a just a really brief example, Greece Central heating is not a thing. It's way too expensive, um, and we also don't have hot water on demand. And I cannot tell you, like coming yeah. from the U.S., how much this drive drives me nuts. And people th- that those little things, those little things that like all add up o- over time to make people's lives better. That's what economic growth has brought us, right? Yeah. And even just the fact that like, and, and that's talking about on the you know pretty far up end on the spectrum. On the lower end of the spectrum, economic growth means that. You have far fewer children, you know, dying under the age of five, um, because people can afford, you know, the things that they need to protect themselves against various diseases or to get themselves to healthcare facilities and this, that and the other thing. Um, it just. It, it really leads to flourishing. Like there's a really strong, you know, when various societies flourish, it, it actually has also cut down on this like conquest thing that you need to go out and, and loot other <laughs> countries' resources and, and invade and take over, right? Like that's, that's not something that we see so much nowadays. And when we see like I said before, we really, there's really an outcry about it. You know, like China does that. Uh, and there's an outcry about it. Um, it's, 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 it's it doesn't mean yeah. that it's okay and it's not happening, but it's not something we accept.
1: When, when you're talking about the effect of economic growth on people who really are living in poor conditions, I sometimes realize or you know think that when we look from the vantage point of a wealthy country, it can feel like people who are living in poor conditions, that they're all roughly the same. But being in extreme poverty is incredibly different to having, you know, having $2 a day is different from $10 a day. I mean, I'm sure Francisco can speak a lot more to that, but it it can be easy not to appreciate the gradations of improvement in lives that happens as you move through the, you know, developing cycle. But Francisco, I just wanted to ask you another question economically, and then we'll get to some of the psychological questions I have around how we think about improvement or, or, or whether things are getting better or whether they're getting worse. But one of the challenges economically that I've seen, seems to be apparent is this hollowing out of the middle class in the developed West, that productivity has continued to increase, but the gains have gone largely to the capital, leaving workers without much, if any, of the wage increases. And with things like housing affordability seeming to be a lot worse than it used to be as a as a percentage of people's wages, it seems like, although one has access to technology that our parents' generation could have only dreamed of the young middle class today do have it tougher than their parents. Is that true? Could you could you paint a little picture of what's happening in the middle class in developed, in the sort of developed world and, and what's hap- what you think is going to happen going forward?
3: Yeah, that's another great question. I mean, I think the driver of this hollowing of the middle class that you're describing, I think there's now quite a bit of agreement, is the corresponding hollowing in the occupational distribution, meaning to say... The way technological progress has been taking place, and technological progress does all these wonderful things that Emma just mm. described, right? There's no disagreement. But the, the recent forms of technological progress around automation and, um, and digitalization have basically meant that routine tasks get replaced by machines, so you know, again, to to refer back to a time when I think a number of us in this call um, were young and you, were, you used to go to the bank. There were there were uh, bank tellers. You remember bank tellers, people sure. that work behind a till in a bank. I mean, those are now a minute fraction of what they were. People who did research for law clerks in law offices, you know, there are a few left, but Google can do it much faster, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, Draftsmen, people who used to Mm. draw things by hand. Uh, So those have all uh, been replaced, and they tended to be in the middle of the distribution. They weren't the cooks Mm. and the cleaners, and they weren't the, you know, top, uh, uh, you know, bankers and lawyers and what.
1: Economic services. (laughs)
3: <laughs> right. And so that, that hollowing of the middle is an issue. The counter argument to that, though, is that, you know, the Industrial Revolution, which you just mentioned, as a key moment when, um, when growth and per capita output became a real thing. So we moved from a Malthusian kind of economy to one in which mm-hmm. there was growth per person, not just mm. on the margin, um, was also an, an era of massive disruption when lots of people lost their jobs. It's just that other jobs were created, right? And people went to them, but it was massively disrupting at the time. So are we living through the same kind of phase now? We're not sure, but uh, we are certainly seeing some people get very unhappy. And the issue is in a society where work is very highly valued, when those middle classes lose uh, that work, a lot of their dignity and their mental health uh, and so on go with it. Um, and so we see, for example, the phenomenon of deaths of despair that Angus Deaton and NKs Case have described in their book for the United States, where you've got a whole bunch, you know, which is behind in part the declining life expectancy for white men and women in the United States.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Emma, let's jump to the, psychological side a little bit and you know i remember when i read the late hans rosling's book factfulness the 2018 book my my perspective flipped you know he, he was uh for people who don't know he was a professor of public of international health and co-founder of the Gapminder foundation which like our world in data uses data to try to understand exactly how the world's changed over time and he'd he'd give talks around the world and would test people on their basic knowledge of how good or bad things are and he consistently found that people assumed things were much worse than they were. And there's just a few examples I have to just sort of read out because they they do hit home. Has poverty stayed the same, doubled or halved in the last 20 years? Only 7% of people knew it had halved. Others thought it doubled or stayed the same. What percentage of children have been vaccinated worldwide? 80%, 50%, 30%. Only 13% got it right, that it's 80%. And worldwide, 30-year-old men have spent 10 years in school. How many years have women of the same age spent? Nine, six, or three years? Only 20% knew it was nine years. And he he would say that, you know, people consistently did worse than monkeys. And interestingly, the educated elite, which was also quite interesting, did particularly poorly. They thought they knew and they were particularly pessimistic, but they didn't know. And he had a whole bunch of theories as to why people seem not to recognize progress. But why do? You, what are your theories? Why do we generally think things are worse than they are, or at least just don't recognize uh, and just don't seem to know uh, the good things that are happening?
2: I think there are a lot of reasons. I'll start with the psychological ones first, right? That we are sort of working against um, how our brain is set up. Um, mm. Stephen Pinker has talked about this, and many other people. Uh, that there's a negativity bias in the brain right so Mm. you remember things more easily that are negative than are positive um it's the same reason why if you go to work and someone tells you like hey your podcast sucked today like you might you know sit on that for a week. But if you Mm -hmm. go to work and someone's like, I really enjoyed the episode today, you're like, hey, thanks. And then probably five minutes later, you've forgotten about it, right? So the same thing just on on a global level, um, that it's much easier to remember the negative than there is the positive. And then for me in particular, a lot of this circles around the news. I think that a lot of this basic information is not presented well in the news uh, because they don't Set things in the context of time. Uh, yeah. A lot, you know, what Francisco and I have been talking about here is like whether we're making progress or not very much so depends on your time scale. So what that progress looks like in a hundred years is different than 50, is different than 10, is different than the last six months. Um, and there's no like real agreement in the news or even anywhere on how you present information about that, right? So if you say, this thing is going up, this thing is going down. It's like, since when, right? How does, that, how does that compare to the the sweep of time? Not that everything needs to be, you know, compared in the last 500 years or whatever, but a lot of the times uh, some really basic context is missing. It's also just the structure of the news. It's how the news is designed. And this is how peop- most people get most of their information about the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's meant to tell you things that are going wrong, right? Like That's it's not even a bad thing necessarily. It's just how it is. Like, it's it's uh, man bites dog, not dog bites man, right? It's it's meant to tell you, like, these are all the the, sh- the crappy things that are happening right now so that we can pay attention to them. It There's never going to be a news story that's like, hey, this guy in Mongolia woke up and, um, you know, he has a better living now. So he upgraded his house and he's, he's in a nice <laughs> dwelling. You know, you're never going to hear a news story about that, um, even though that's the reality of a lot of people on a daily basis all over the world. And then there's the more like uh, the, those things are just from the structure of the news, and I think it's benign. Um, then are there are some things that are going on, particularly I'm thinking about the U.S. because that's the you know the news sources that I have the most access to that are more intentionally toxic, where mm-hmm. there really is a industry based around getting people to click on negative headlines. And it's not in you know best interest of the business to tell people like this is what's what's going right. There's also I think a, a bit of a thing in journalism that it seemed like fluffy or non-substantive yeah. to present things that are going right. Um, you know, as a journalist, like you want to be hard hitting and you want to tell people how it is. And you know, the kind of solution space journalism that's kind of having a moment right now is is not that. Um, and then on the other end too. Uh, it, this goes back to the negativity bias in, in our psychology. Um, the reason there is a business around people clicking on negative headlines and negative news is because that's what people click on, right? So there's a cycle going on that yeah, that's what we, that's what we want. We want to listen to. We, yeah, read. we want to read. They deliver
1: it to us. They make more money. They keep delivering bad news. I guess.
2: Exactly, so you got a little a little cycle going there, and then um, there's the
1: availability bias of that. You know, that's what we are. That's what readily comes to mind when we think, oh, things. You know, how's the child mortality rate?" And you you've seen an article. We said five million kids died that year. Well, it must be terrible. When actually, there's a context to it that's not reported.
2: Yeah, exactly. I um I did an article about this. It's called uh, How to Read the News Without Losing Your Mind. It's a couple of years old now. So these these references are a little outdated. But I think it was in 2018 or 19. It was like the highest year for terrorist killings on record on OECD countries. And it was something like 250 people had died, right? Which is terrible. It's tragic for, yeah. for those 250 people and their families. Um but if you compared those numbers to, let's say, the state in the U.S. that had the highest suicides um, that year, there was three times the number of people had you know killed themselves in, in one state in the U.S. And I'm sure if you polled people in the U.S. around 2018, the thing on their mind was like terrorism. It definitely was not suicide, um, which just goes to show, like you said, there's an availability bias there. If you see something covered a lot, that's the thing that comes to your mind as a risk. You know, if the narrative is not given to you that things are getting better, it it won't be there for you.
1: Thanks, Emma. And it it does lead to this question I've got for you, Francisco, about this line that I think from memory Hans Rosling used in his book, that things are bad, but better. And that I can understand for many people, it can seem heartless to even mouth these words, things are are getting better when there's still so much wrong with the world. Um, I did use this example in my introduction that to celebrate a reduction in child mortality when 5 million children still die every year can seem perverse. And I've had a lot of arguments with smart people, including my sister, um, and it does feel like pulling teeth, you know, to get her to admit that anything's improving. It's like she's betraying all the people and the animals, which is her primary area of interest who are suffering. But there's surely a danger in not recognising when things are getting better as we may end up throwing out the policies that are working just because they haven't entirely fixed the problem. But I also recognise that these things can just be about personal emotional regulation. Uh, I can be a bit glass half full as a person to motivate me and keep myself from despair, where others might need to feel that despair to motivate action. How do you think about the strategic pros and cons of recognizing success when there's clearly so much more work that needs to be done?
3: Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's actually on poverty, something I, I used to think a lot about, because You know, poverty, as we have just said, global poverty, extreme poverty in the world has been declining Mm -hmm. very fast since at least the late 1970s, which is when we have data from. And you mentioned some numbers earlier, Emil, about that. And but I would often, you know, I used to work for the World Bank and I would go Mm -hmm. around and mention this fact to people and people say, how can you say that you were at the World Bank poor people? You know, and I said, well, you know, there are and any extreme poverty left is too much. But that doesn't mean that it hasn't been going down, and in particular, the fact that it's been going down should give us hope that we can uh, do something uh, for the ones that are still poor. Um, Mostly, they themselves are doing something, actually, quite a lot of what uh, explains people escaping poverty is people's own hard work at escaping poverty. Um, But a conducive environment around them, of course, helps. Uh, and there's a little bit of redistribution occasionally. Mostly it's just people's own hard work. You know, mm. the Mongolian guy that uh, got his better house that Emma was talking about probably rebuilt it himself, right? Mm. That's uh, that. That's how, how it works. But maybe he had better tools to do it now. And the tools, you know, came from somewhere and someone invented them. So, so you know, I, I don't have any disagreement there, really. I think uh, on a number of fronts, you know, climate change being a notable exception in my view, and you know some things that are more recent around around democracy and authoritarianism and, and certain um, other things that we talked about. You know the grand sweep of history does see big improvements in 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 in, in, in many things, and it is important for us to be able to um, acknowledge that improvement and treat it as a positive and you know and something that can uh, help address all the the bad stuff that remains, all the poverty that remains, all the
1: yes, because I guess the fear is that you might jettison policies that are working based on reaction that things are really bad. Um, it's sort of question of what what does that mean for, for what we do going into the future? I was also thinking, Francisco, about the question of this podcast, are things getting better and worse? And I've been a bit confused as to how to categorise decreases in the rate of improvement. For example, if the economy still looks set to grow, which I understand it does, but to grow at a lower rate than previously, I think most newspapers would say things are getting worse and lead with the bad news story. And whereas in reality, you know, it is still actually getting bigger, the economy. Um, And the same could be said about so many other things like, uh, you know, the reduction in the gender pay gap, which is still decreasing, but the rate of decrease might be slowing. How should we think and feel about things that are still improving, but they're improving more slowly than before? <laughs> I, I, think we, I think we should feel... <laughs> Is bad um, or good? Like, what's your, what's your gut reaction? Is it like, that's a bad news? Or no, don't throw so it I all, think you know? That's
3: where the dichotomy breaks down, right? If, there ever, right? if it ever was useful, I think that's where the dichotomy breaks down. I mean, I think we should think of them as, okay, things are still improving, but we should ask ourselves the question... Why are they doing so more slowly? And are we doing something wrong? Could it still be getting better at the same rate that it was before? Right. Mm. So sometimes policies or choices people make can slow down improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's probably a little sort of cavalier to just think, oh, well, it's still going up. I'll give you a very specific example to the UK, which is where I am now. It's almost certain that Brexit has reduced the rate of growth of the UK, um, yeah. which at the moment is actually in a recession. Um, but it's likely to stay st- structurally doing less well than it did for a while. But if it, even if it grows, right, mm-hmm. it is doing so um, at a less uh at a lesser pace than it would otherwise had they not chosen to break with the European Union. So that there is probably something where it would be complacent to say, yeah, well, you know, you know still who cares? We're still growing. Well you're falling behind. You're doing less well than you could be doing. That's I think an important criteria. Okay. Is, motivate, is, yeah. case, is it getting less rapid because we're we're hitting some sort of natural barrier, as may be the case, for example, with decline in child mortality or, or in life expectancy in some cases. Maybe you're getting to sort of some natural curvature where you can't get that much faster. You know, the, the, the low-hanging fruit have been picked. Or is it that you've made a stupid decision um, as Brexit yeah. was?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there, are there just last question for you, Francisco. What what are the things you think are actually worse than most people think? You know, where, where are people too harsh, laugh, fool, or, or or not quite concerned enough? I mean I'm just wondering if you might think something like the low probability high impact events like the risk of AI going rogue or or you know biosecurity or or problems in con- continents like Africa where we there's a bit of fatigue uh, around the world sort of Africa fatigue or I don't know it's up to you where where do we underestimate how bad things are
3: I I do think climate change is one of those um, yep. it it could be That all this progress we're making on solar and wind energy and so on makes a big difference. It could also be that some glacier, the name of which I don't know, you know, that we know that they are slipping down and there are certain bits of glaciers holding other bits in the Antarctica. Mm. And some of these huge glacier fields could make a very, you know, sizable difference. Uh, in sea levels. And if they did, a third of Bangladesh could be underwater. Bangladesh, mm. that Emma mentioned, is a place that's been doing really well, is really vulnerable. So there are, there are places that are really vulnerable. And I don't know how much we value, how correctly we value that, that tail of the risk. So I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but you know, there's a probability distribution. And, and I think we're probably a little complacent about the, the bad side of that probability distribution. With climate change, things could go really wrong. So I, th- I think that's uh, that's yeah. one example. And another, just very quickly, is, um, is pandemics, right? So this pandemic we had was uh, the first, in a sense, of its kind. Um, but I understand, it's not my field, but I understand that the sort of interconnections between animals and people, uh, you know, the zoonotic Diseases are much closer to people now um, everywhere, and and communication and transportation linkages are are much bigger than they were before. So there is a risk that those things recur, and uh, hopefully we've learned some of our lessons. Uh, I think we coped with this pandemic in some senses better than we might have expected, the speed of the vaccine uh, discovery and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, it was a pretty tragic event with lots and lots of deaths.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's hard to emotionally know what to do with low probability events that could be terrible, whether it's you know pandemics in the future or, or that example of the glacier and climate change. We, we we probably tend to undervalue them. And AI is an example of an area that I think a lot of people are concerned could be really problematic. It's likely not to be, but it could be. But if it is. You know, we have greater technological ability to cause big problems now than we had 200 years ago. So I would personally put that on the side of an area where things are getting worse, the sort of technological risks. But Emma, just the last question for you, and then I'll hand over to Lloyd. But when I was researching whether general happiness has improved over time, I came across a fascinatingly weird discrepancy that people in every country vastly underestimate the self reported happiness of others. So the most extreme examples are in Asia. South Koreans, for example, think that only 24% of people would report being happy, when in reality, 90% say they're happy. I can't entirely get my head around what's happening here. Why do we so vastly misread other people? And do you think this could be the same pattern as people generally seeing the world as a whole as getting worse, even if people don't necessarily think their own personal lives are getting worse
2: the short answer to that is i have no idea yeah. <laughs> i yeah. i think it does i think it does come down to this just like you think because you hear in the narrative that everything is going badly you could very easily assess your own life that i'm doing fine but if you're hearing that everything else is bad of course you would also assume that um other people are suffering yeah that's that probably would be, right i guess
1: It's just such a marked discrepancy, and it's not just Asia. It's everywhere in the world, apparently, or where, you know, statistics have been recorded. Okay. Um, Thanks so much.
3: Well, that was part one of the
0: show, but check back in next week for our On the Couch episode where Lloyd throws the guests tough questions and curveballs. And if you're enjoying Principle of Charity, be sure to leave a review and spread the word. See you next week.